that's important because there's only one thing that can satisfy our souls, and that's Jesus Christ. I can eat a lot of things that satisfy my stomach, but only one thing satisfies my soul. Well, this morning we read from the Gospel of Luke the story of Jesus' resurrection. Now, if you have your Bible with you, please turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because this morning I'd like us to consider the importance, the internal importance of the most significant event that has ever happened in human history. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church to correct several problems that were occurring in it. Some of the problems they were facing were somewhat minor in nature. Some were extremely serious, some severe. The Corinthian believers were proud, they were arrogant, and they had divided themselves. They had factioned off uh, a lot of arguments, contention within that church. They thought themselves to be models of Christianity, but in truth, as one commentator put it, they were a catastrophe. The problems in that church included the tolerance of sin, in fact, a sin that was not even known among the Gentiles, and yet they were tolerant of it. Paul had to correct that. They could not resolve their own problems with each other, so they're bringing lawsuits before pagan judges to have them resolved. Paul had to correct that. Amazingly, Paul actually had to tell them to quit committing sexual sin with temple prostitutes. One of the pagan temples there was that of Aphrodite, and they had been doing that before they became Christians. They just kept doing it. Paul had to correct them on that. Paul had to counsel them concerning marriage, the use of Christian liberty and proper behavior in the worship services. They thought themselves to be spiritually superior because they had uh, many spiritual gifts. In fact, Paul says they had every spiritual gift operating within their congregation. And yet, because of their selfishness within the use of those gifts, he had to correct them on that. They were actually dividing over spiritual gifts rather than the spiritual gifts unifying them, opposite of what should have been happening. But the problem that would seem to be the least likely one to occur, and yet is the most serious one mentioned in the book of 1 Corinthians, is that they were even confused about the resurrection. Something so basic to, to the gospel message, and they were confused about it. Somebody had come along and started teaching that there was no resurrection from the dead. And falling under the influence of that heresy, they were confused. And so that's the issue that Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, Paul begins by summarizing the gospel message in verses 1 through 11. And please follow along as I read through this section. It says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So Paul begins here by just saying, I'm going to tell you what I've already told you. This is the gospel message, verses 1 and 2. 
And then he briefly recounts the core facts of the gospel in verses 3 and 4. First, Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That was the purpose of his death. It just wasn't a death. There was a purpose in it. Died as a substitute for our sins. He paid the price that we owe. Second is that he was buried. It's one of those things that demonstrates he was actually dead. He was there for three days. He was affirmed dead by many people. But he didn't stay that way, did he? Because on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And that is certainly why we're celebrating today. That's why we celebrate really every Sunday. It's in honor of the Lord's resurrection. He was raised from the dead. So these are the core facts of the gospel. Now, Paul goes on in verses 5 through 8 to talk about eyewitnesses of this. Because I could tell you all sorts of stories. And uh, if I was telling you the truth or not, you wouldn't know, would you? You'd have to have something to confirm that. Both the Old Testament in passages such as Deuteronomy 17.6 and 19.5 and the New Testament in passages such as Matthew 18.16 and 2 Corinthians 13.1 tell us that in the mouth of two or three witnesses the truth is established. So Paul is going to establish the truth of Jesus' resurrection. Who were those that actually saw him, actually touched him, were with him? Because otherwise, hey, it's just a story. And who knows if you're telling the truth? And so Paul recounts here the particular people. First, there's Cephas, or Peter. And then the rest of the apostles. Then he says more than 500 eyewitnesses at one time. So while some might say, it's, oh, they just had a, a vision, a dream or something, you can't do that with 500 people all at the same time. Then it said also to James, that's the brother of the Lord. And then finally, Paul says, to me also. So Paul cites three individuals and two groups. One group has 11 in it, and the other group has more than 500. Plenty of eyewitnesses demonstrating the truth. That would establish history for any book, with the eyewitness accounts of it. They believed the gospel message the Corinthians did, whether it was preached by Paul or someone else. Well, the same is true for us. It really doesn't matter who told us the gospel. The importance is that we believe the truth of it and have placed our faith in the correct Jesus. Now, I say it that way because I talked about this last week, and it's important to mention it again. In order to be saved by faith in Christ Jesus, you have to have faith in the correct object. Okay? It must be the correct Jesus, because faith in faith does not save, and that is where a lot of people are at today. They believe that because they believe, the act of believing saves them. Does that even make sense? I'm saved because I believed I'm saved. I believe I'm on Mars because I believe I'm on Mars. But that's as, as ridiculous as it is. Believing something doesn't make it so. People get injured all the time believing they can do things that they really can't. Then we bear the scars and are reminded, hopefully, that we're only human beings and we can't really do the things that sometimes we think that we can. Faith and faith doesn't save. Faith has to have an object, and the object of faith is Jesus Christ. It also has to be the correct Jesus. We talked about this last week. It must be the biblical Jesus. There are a lot of entities out there, or people having stories, claiming about a Jesus, but it's not the one of the Bible. It needs to be the Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, God who became a human. 
the Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary, the Jesus who lived a sinless life. That, of course, sets him apart from every other being. No sin. Though tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. The Jesus who died as a substitute sacrifice. Now, there's a lot of people who've been named Jesus that have died, but they didn't die as a substitute sacrifice for sin. The one who was buried and was raised from the dead. That certainly separates the Jesus of the Bible from all other claims. He was raised from the dead on the third day. The Jesus that has ascended to heaven, where he is currently making intercession for us, and the Jesus that has promised that he's going to return from his people. That's the Jesus we're talking about. We're not talking about the brother of Lucifer, which one cult believes in, or some lesser God that another cult believes in. We're talking about the Jesus of the Bible. That's the one that saves. If you have your faith in the wrong Jesus, he can't save you. Okay? I have three sons. They can come to me and ask me all sorts of things because I'm their father. But they can't go to one of you who is not their father and say whatever they would expect from me. You have no obligation to them. I do. You can't help them. I have to help them, right? It's the same thing. I have to have the correct Jesus. I have the one that I have this relationship with. Now, in verse 12, Paul begins to address the specific problem among some of the Corinthians concerning this heresy they've been taught about the resurrection, that there wasn't one. Paul says there in verse 12, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If Jesus is raised from the dead, what's the problem here? How is it you're getting this idea that there is no resurrection? In many ways, it would seem absurd that Paul would even have to address this question. How could anyone involved in a Christian church question the resurrection of the dead? It's such a basic doctrine in the Bible. And yet, if we examine what is often taught and believed in churches in America, suddenly maybe it's not so absurd. Because there's many ridiculous things that Christians, professing Christians, will believe simply because someone told them that. I'm going to take one of my shots at TBN again. Some of you are aware, if you've been watching it, there are some good preachers on there, and there are some heretics. It's absolute heresy what they, they teach. And there's people who believe that stuff. Why? There's no discernment, and they don't do what we should all be doing as Christians. We go back to the Bible, and we check it out. Because it doesn't matter if I say it or someone else says it. Who says it? The question is, is did God say it? What I say is of no consequence. It's what did God say? And the only value I have even to you is am I telling you what God said? If I get off from that, you have a responsibility to correct me. Okay? And I have a responsibility to confess if I teach something opposite of what God says. But there's a lot of things that are taught that have no relationship with the Scripture. It's speculation, and off they run with it. We have to check it out. And there's all sorts of bizarre things that people have come to believe because somebody who has, I guess we said it, someone has a nice suit. Is my suit impressive enough for you to believe me? <laughs> I like honesty. Yeah, let's see. Timex, not Rolex. At least got the X right. Look, that kind of thing does impress some people, though. Hey, he's got all the wealth, he's got that. God must be speaking through him, so I'll believe what he says. These things are not true. We must go back to what Scripture itself says. They were not doing that. In other books, Paul gets on to other groups for doing the same thing. Someone comes in after he's been there 
espouses oddball ideas and they just grab onto it. Why? They were eloquent in speech. Paul says, I don't speak so well. I didn't come in power of speech. I came in the power of God. And you believe because it's what God has said. Now, it's also not surprising that some people would doubt the resurrection there because we have people who are professing Christians now that doubt the resurrection. Here are some of the groups that currently do not believe in the resurrection. Theological liberals teach, do not teach the resurrection because they don't believe that Jesus was resurrected. And there's a lot of different ideas, but one of the more popular ones is this theory sometimes called the swoon theory. And their idea is that Jesus didn't die at the crucifixion. He, uh, he went, became unconscious and looked like he was dead. And they put him in the grave, and because it's a nice, cool place, he revived in the grave and then came out. So he never really died. This is called the swoon theory. Now, of course, there's a lot of things they can't explain, like the blood and the water that came out when the soldier pierced his side. The blood, the plasma, and the platelets had already separated. They can't explain that. And remember, the Roman soldier was surprised that Jesus was dead. That's why he thrust a spear in his side. They can't explain some other things. Um, for example, how does someone go through what Jesus did and recover in a, in a tomb? Remember, Jesus was beaten. He was scourged. In fact, he had lost so much blood, he collapsed when carrying his cross. Remember that? And then Simon Cyrene had to be in present service. And remember, he was a carpenter. My father was a carpenter. Carpenters usually have some pretty good muscle. He was not a weak man. So much blood loss, he collapsed. And then they place him in a tomb after a spear had been stuck into his side. They put a, a cloth over the face, and then they wrap you up around the head and all the way down. They put spices in there. They put you, this is in a, a tomb, not a, in a grave, but in a tomb. And you're laying there. He has no food or water. So what they would like you to believe is that after all of this, I'm not sure exactly how he's able to breathe, but I guess he was able to breathe well enough, finally was revived in there, managed to somehow get out of all this wrapping. It's not like he's wearing a suit. He's wrapped up. He gets out of this, recovers. He had no, nothing to eat for quite a while, nothing to drink, rolls a stone away from inside the tomb, which means he can't get a grip. He has to friction it, you know. He rolls it away and overpowers an armed guard. And they thought I had faith. <laughs> That's a silly theory. There are others that teach that Jesus was not physically resurrected. It was his spirit. So we'll call this the ghost theory. It was his ghost that was seen by so many. And yet, they can't explain how this ghost was able to cook, eat, and drink with the disciples, or how Mary was able to grab his feet and hang on to so much that he had said, Jesus told Mary, he says, Mary, let me go. Well, how do you grab a ghost? She knew how, I guess. Another silly theory. But then there's other things. For example, there's a lot of evangelicals who believe in reincarnation. They have come under the influence of Eastern mystical teachings, and so they have grasped onto some of these ideas that come out of Hinduism, that the soul transmigrates from one body into another body in continuing cycles. To some people you talk to, they think they've lived in a previous time. I lived in a previous time. I lived back in the 60s. My kids think that's weird, especially if they see a picture of me back then. Maybe some of you wore the same kind of clothes. <laughs> but this isn't what we're talking about. They believe in this migration of souls. 
I hope you understand reincarnation and resurrection are mutually exclusive. Because either soul is going to be migrating from body to body, or it has one body, and that body is resurrected. It can't be both. It's one or the other. With all these things in mind, then, we can see the importance of Paul addressing this problem in the Corinthian church and why it's still important for us. There were people who were doubting the resurrection of the dead. And Paul then addresses this issue through the rest of the chapter by showing a series of logical steps. If there is no resurrection, then, verse 13, if there's not a resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. In other words, if you deny that there is a resurrection of the dead as a whole, then you must conclude that Jesus Christ also has not been resurrected from the dead. They go hand in hand. Next, verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain, your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So he repeats himself here and emphasizes it. If Jesus Christ was not from, raised from the dead, then Paul and all the others that have taught you the gospel are false witnesses and false teachers. He's challenged him. Recognize something. Somebody is lying to you. And it's either us who have told you the gospel or these people who are telling you that there is no resurrection of the dead. Somebody's lying. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. It is the resurrection of Christ that proves he came, overcame death, which is the penalty of sin. If he did not overcome death, he didn't overcome the penalty of sin, and you are still in your sins. There is no payment. He died and perished, and so will you. That's not a very happy thought, is it? Instead, as verse 18 says, there is a ramification. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If there's no resurrection, those who have died have had a false hope. They are not saved, they have perished. And the word there means to be separated from God and lost forever. It's not just a physical word for death. It means separated and lost. And so in verse 19, Paul concludes, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, then we are of all men most to be pitied. Without the resurrection of the dead, Christianity is a false religion, and those following it should receive the pity of others. Paul's argument is that it's foolish to follow Christianity if you reject the resurrection of the dead. That'd be a stupid thing to do. If there's not a hope in a life to come, then of what purpose would there be both to set aside the pleasures this world has to offer and to suffer the things you go through as a Christian? Because the world doesn't like you, it hates you. And it will cause tribulation upon you. All those who strive to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why go through that if there's no resurrection of the dead? So if that is what is really the truth, then people who would be so foolish to do that should invoke feelings of sorrow and compassion by those who are wiser and enjoying the pleasures of this world and not suffering the persecution. Pity the poor person. Look what they're going through. Silly person. Well, Paul's arguments don't stop here. He goes on to affirm again the truth of resurrection in verses 20 through 26. It says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and after that those who are Christ at his coming. 
Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to, to God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection to his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he has ex- accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. Paul's argument is simple here. He declares the truth that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He then goes on to explain that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the example of what is going to happen to all those who believe and follow him. There's going to be a resurrection of us as well. And that future resurrection will be occur at his coming. 1 Thessalonians 4 and other passages talk about that point in time. Christ is going to rule, and we will rule with him. Revelation 20, verse 14, then says at the end that the last enemy, death, is abolished. It, Hades, and all those whose names are not written in the book of life are then cast into the lake of fire. For humans that go there, that's the second death. Those who take part in his first resurrection have no part in the second death. That is of no concern to us. It has no effect upon us. But death itself is going to be subject to Christ. It's going to be abolished. Now, in verses 29 through 34, Paul simply shows the foolishness of living for Christ if there's no rest for the dead. If there's no resurrection, you might as well be a hedonist. But then goes on to confront them as the reason you're believing these things, you're, you're spending time with foolish people. Get away from those people. They are corrupting you. They're leading you astray. In verses 35 through 49, Paul answers the hypothetical question that someone would ask is, well, what is the nature of the resurrection body? First of all, it's going to be a real physical body, but not a perishable one like we have now. Here's what he says, starting in verse 35. Someone will say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? You ever had people do that to you? Since you can't explain exactly what it is, I say, well, then I don't believe it. There's a lot of things I can't explain exactly what, what they are or how they, they work. Yet I believe it. Some of you can't explain how your car works. If I see you here, did you walk? Ride a horse? Bicycle? Skateboard? No? Did you have to know everything about how the car works to get here? No, you didn't. Ever been on a plane? Some neat physics involved in a plane flight. Most people who get on a plane have a clue how it goes up. They're just concerned that it comes down in the right way. <laughs> you don't have to understand everything to believe it works. 36. You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. There is also the resurrection of the dead. See the contrast he's making there? There's all sorts of these different kinds of things. Don't think it's supposed to be like what you currently have. Verse 42, So also the resurrection of the dead, it is sown a perishable body, it is raised in an imperishable body. That's why his allusion earlier to planting seeds. You sow something that's maybe that big, and next thing you know you've got an eight-foot corn stock. 
It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So whatever this thing is, it is real, it's physical, but it's not like what we've got now. It is something different. I'm waiting for the amen. Because <laughs> you're like, yeah, I want a different body. And the more pains you have, the, more, the louder your amen. I'd love to get rid of this thing. I'm glad some of you agree. I'd, maybe some of you'd like me to get rid of this thing, too. Okay. Not, thank you, Nancy. Well, the Apostle John described this well in 1 John 3, 2. He says, It has not appeared as yet what we shall be, yet we know that when we, he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. See, we don't know the makeup of it. We know this, it will be imperishable, heavenly body like that of Jesus Christ after his resurrection. That's what we know. So what are some of those things that we do know? Well, after the resurrection, Jesus could be seen and was seen by many. 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8, we already talked about that. Then he could be touched, John 20, 17 and 20, 27. He was physically touched. He could eat. I'm glad that part's in heaven. You're not eating and you don't get fat. Wow. Uh, Luke 24, 42, 43, John 20, 13 through 15, he ate. He could appear suddenly, John 20, verse 26, and he could also disappear suddenly, Luke 24, 31. That's different than what we can do. Boy, I'd, I'd like that appearing, disappearing thing would be great too. Because so often you have to be in two places at one time. You can just zip back and forth. But we don't know, but we do know it's going to be like Christ. And these are some things that we know about it. Other than that, we don't know. We don't, but we're going to find out. We're going to find out, and I'm looking forward to that. That is our hope. Jesus conquered death, and those of us who have been saved from our sins by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have that hope as well, conquering death with him. And it's not a hope-so hope. We use hope so often as a wish. Hope in the Bible is used as confident assurance. Confident assurance because the promises that of God has made us. It's as confident who he is. That's why we believe. Paul describes this hope in verse 50, starting in verse 50. He says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. And sleep is a euphemism for death here. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, this mortal must put on the immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death's sting, its victory is taken away because Jesus Christ has triumphed over the grave. 
He has triumphed over the law and our sin. His resurrection proves what's vital to us, conquering sin and enabling us to be forgiven. Being forgiven, there is no penalty of death. A poem by Elwood McQuaid entitled Death Meets His Master well describes this. Starts off says, Father Time, that pale king death, sitting by a tomb. Hello, old friend, I guess you're here to seal somebody's doom. You might say that, sly death replied. A smile slid up his face. Inside reposes that Jesus man who said he'd save the race. And you, Time, why are you stopping here? Don't you have things to do? I come each day to draw the veil and let the morning through. Say, why are you watching just one grave with all your vast domain? Looks like you'd be out rambling round and spiting folks with pain. Well, this one's something special. He challenged me, they say. Said he'd rest here for just three days and stir and walk away. Now, I'm the conqueror, you know. They don't talk up to me. When I stepped in to cut him down, it's for eternity. I can sure testify to that, responded Father Time. I ain't seen one shake off the dust since you've been in your prime. Well, I got other things to do. I must be on my way. I'll see you when I come back by to make another day. So whiskered time went up the hill to bid the sun to rise. He left death standing by the tomb, looking strong and wise. Next day, time ambled by again. And how are things, he queried. Kind of quiet, death replied. I'm starting to be wearied. I won't be here when you come by about this time tomorrow. I'm anxious to be on my way and spread some grief and sorrow. Now, Father Time was quite surprised when he came back to see death a-quivering on the ground in frightful agony. His eyes were set, his throat was marked, his clothes in disarray. It wasn't difficult to see that death had had his day. What happened, death? asked Father Time. What makes you look so bad? I've never seen you shake this way or seem so scared and sad. Well, death pulled himself up on a rock, a-looking sick and humble hung his head and wrung his hand, and time could hear him mumble. was sitting here before the dawn, about to take my stroll, when all at once the whole wide world began to reel and roll. That rolling stone jumped off the door, and it skipped on down the hill. Then everything grew dark and quiet. It seemed like the earth stood still. I saw him standing in the door. He didn't move or speak, just looked at me, and all at once I felt so tired and weak. He came and got a hold on me. He threw me on the ground. He put his foot here on my neck and took my keys and crown. Two angels came to talk with him. They glistened like the sun. He said, the plan's all finished now. Redemption's work is done. And as they passed the garden gate, I heard him say just then, he's setting free my captives and giving gifts to men. Time and death met once again off yonder by the gate. It's good to see you, said old time. I've wondered about your fate. I'm just a lonely servant now. There's little time to roam. I just push open this old gate and help the saints get home. Well, that is our wonderful hope because of the resurrection. What you believe about the resurrection affects your life. And life apart from the hope of the resurrection really leaves little except hedonism that described back in verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Just live for the moment. What point would there be except to live for the pleasure of the moment because it all ends at death? Tragically, that is the way many people live. They live just in that. No future, nothing. They live for the moment. 
Their lives are temporal and ultimately meaningless. But life lived with the confidence assurance of the resurrection has eternal purpose and meaning, and that's why Paul concludes this whole section, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. We have a reason for living in the present. Now, if you don't have that hope, then talk with myself, talk with one of our church leaders. We'd love to introduce you to Jesus Christ. You can know today that you too will be taking part in the first resurrection and not the second. You don't want to be part of the second. If there's any place you don't want to be number two, it's this one. You want to be part of number one, the first resurrection to life. We'd love to introduce you to that. If you do have that hope, then praise the Lord and tell somebody about it. Because he is risen. He is risen indeed. So don't keep such good news to yourself. Amen? Amen. Father, again, we are so grateful for what you've done for us. And certainly this morning, to the celebration of Jesus' resurrection, no more important event in human history. And we are so grateful for it. Thank you that we have a reason to be happy, to be joyful, no matter what our circumstances we have something to tell people about that's worth telling. Father, thank you that death does not have the victory. And even as Elwood McQuaid had put in this poem, should you tarry so long that we physically die, we know he's only going to be there to open the gate for us as we go home to be with the Lord. Thank you for that confident assurance, this great hope. In Jesus' name, amen.